that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. He's been fighting substance use allegations and defending his ability to govern the city of Toronto. We'll be discussing the Rob Ford saga with Rabble.ca contributor Michael Laxer. Does this signal the end of Mayor Rob Forbes' bumpy tenure at City Hall? And in the second half of the show, we'll be hearing about the Women Transforming Cities 2013 conference, which is designed to facilitate discussion about transforming our cities into places where women are more involved in electoral processes and municipal governments are responsive to the priorities of women and girls in Canada's urban centres. You're tuned into the city here on CATR and CJSF, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
Obviously, I want to address uh, these false accusations or allegations, whatever you want to call it, um, against me and against you. This is uh, all ridiculous. I, uh, I, no matter what you say, I found out to the media, you're never going to make them happy. You can, you can give them 10 bars of gold, and they're going to want, why don't I get 15 bars of gold? Well, you know what, folks, um, that's the media that we have, unfortunately. And uh, they're all getting painted with the same brush. There's a lot of nasty. I, I, I think it's oh, uh, oh, 80%. <laughs> well, yeah, 80, 80% of them are, are nasty son of a guns. Bunch of maggots. Now, Mayor Rob Ford had to leave after the first part of that program. He said he had a family engagement, but his, uh, his brother, you saw there, Doug Ford, picked up and continued the attack, going further, saying that, suggesting that the media in this city spend $20 million a year simply attacking the Ford family, even suggesting that some members of the media involved in these accusations themselves, as he put it, are known to indulge in crack cocaine. Though, incidentally, Doug Ford himself offered no source for that information. Uh, I understand he spent the second hour of the broadcast defending himself against the Globe and Mail's charge that he used to be a drug dealer. How did that go? Well, that's right. In, in fact, uh, Doug Ford opened the phone lines in the second half hour to take calls from members of the public. Uh, those allegations you touched on, published in the Globe and Mail yesterday, suggesting that Doug Ford was once a prominent drug dealer back in the 1980s, that he sold hashish in his West Toronto neighborhood of Etobicoke. Uh, Doug Ford wasted little time denying those allegations when they first surfaced yesterday. Today, he opened the phone lines and even received a call from a man who identified himself as a former cop in that neighborhood. Take a listen to what he had to say. I had never heard your name surface involving, involving you in any type of drug culture or drug involvement of any kind. And I believe that I would be the the one of the people that would be most likely to have that type of information pass over my desk. And the reason he's never heard Doug Ford's name because Doug Ford wasn't doing that. It's plain, plain and simple. And in fact, we should say that the vast majority of the callers to the program this afternoon were Ford supporters, people joining their calls that the media in uh, this region are simply on a witch hunt out to get the Fords and that it's all a bunch of uh, uh, anonymous sourcing and, and made up videos. In fact, Doug Ford at one point said that journalism has reached a new low and says that the callers and the show of support is just another indication of the fact that the people on this city are, remain uh, is supportive of the Ford family. That is the CBC's Jeff Semple in Toronto. And that's, uh, as you heard, uh, that's uh, audio from the CBC, courtesy of the CBC. And uh, certainly uh, the Rob Ford saga is uh, one many people are watching uh, quite intently across Canada, uh, Canada's largest city, uh, Toronto. And uh, now we're going to go to a Globe and Mail clip, um, audio clip with uh, John Stackhouse, editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail, defending their recent expose, uh, looking at the past and the history of the Ford family and their connection to uh, uh, the drug trade in Toronto. Um, and we're going to hear that clip right now. Several drug allegations concerning Rob Ford and his brother Doug Ford have sent Toronto City Hall into a state of disarray. 
This weekend, the Globe and Mail published an investigation that alleges other drug connections with the Ford family. Editor-in-Chief John Stackhouse joins me now to discuss this story. At this point, have you heard anything from the Ford family regarding any legal action against the paper? No, we've not had any direct communication from the Fords since the, uh, since the story was published. Since the article has come out, a number of people, including the Fords, have kind of questioned the relevancy of facts from 30 years ago. What do you say to that argument? First of all, Doug Ford has made a big issue out of drugs in this city and drug-related crime. We've applauded efforts by the city to reduce drug crime. If a politician is going to take that sort of stand, it's relevant to the citizens of the city to understand any links that that politician might have had even decades ago to, uh, to the drugs business in the city. That's what we're trying to set out. We're also trying to set out here uh, a bit of background on the Ford family. The Fords have become the most powerful family politically in the city of Toronto, and very little is known, or certainly not enough is known, about their background. We've tried to fill in some of the blanks with our reporting. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the evidence behind this investigation. I mean, a lot of people have commented that the sources are primarily anonymous. How do we justify that as the Globe and Mail? This is something we do in exceptional circumstances when we believe the public interest overrides any concerns that there is about anonymity. Uh, our sources, all 10 of them, who were directly involved in transactions or uh, witness to transactions back in the 1980s, felt that they had to remain anonymous. We had discussions with them over a number of months and re-interviewed them, had them uh, interviewed in front of senior editors and lawyers as well to ensure that we were very comfortable with uh, what they were putting forward. And we also corroborated it. We ensured that uh, some of these witnesses did not know other witnesses and therefore it wasn't one person speaking for a group uh, and us relying on a closed loop, if you will, or a closed circle of uh, sources. These are independent sources speaking independently to us and we feel confident uh, that what they're saying is uh, is defensible. Hmm. Interesting. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you. And that clip courtesy of the Globe and Mail. And now uh, for a critical and uh, progressive take and perspective on this, uh, I caught up with um, Michael Laxer and he uh, recently um, wrote and had an article published on rabble.ca um, around uh, Rob Ford and the, the ongoing uh, controversies and uh, Dangerous Addictions, Toronto, Right-Wing Hypocrisies and Rob Ford. Uh, that was the title of the article. Check it out at rabble.ca, uh, published on May 18th. And Michael Laxer writes, Another week in Toronto and another scandal involving our sideshow of a mayor, Rob Ford. This latest one, in case somehow you've not heard, involves an apparent video of the mayor allegedly not only smoking crack cocaine, but also using homophobic language to disparage Justin Trudeau in describing the players of the high school football team he coaches as, quote, just effing minorities, end quote. It is really one thing after another with Ford. For example, very shortly after entirely credible claims were made regarding apparent drunken sexual misconduct by Ford by Sarah Thompson back in March, new allegations that the mayor prior to this was asked to leave a different public uh, social function also due to apparent intoxication burst onto the headlines. Despite the overwhelming and constantly mounting evidence to the contrary, Ford himself and many of his allies have continued to insist that all the allegations are simply a fabrication of his enemies and the liberal media, most especially the Toronto Star. In the specific case of the latest alleged video, this is especially silly given that the story was first published by an online American publication. This is almost humorously delusional for a bunch of for a bunch that presents itself as hard-headed, no-nonsense realists. 
Michael Laxer, uh, and that's uh, just an end of uh, an excerpt from his uh, article. Uh, Michael Laxer lives in Toronto. He runs a bookstore with his partner. He has a degree in history from Glendon College at York uh, University. He's a political activist, a two-time former candidate, and a former election organizer for the NDP. Uh, he was a socialist candidate for Toronto City Council in 2010, and he's on the executive of the newly formed Socialist Party of Toronto. Michael, you um, you wrote an article published um, by Rabble.ca um, on May 18th. Uh, can you give me a sense of uh, what you were arguing in your piece? Well, I mean, the piece uh, basically argues that Rob Ford is almost, um, I mean, he's almost, he, he personifies the fact that in our society there are two different sets of rules, um, and that there's a completely different set of rules that seem to apply to people who are uh, wealthy, um, you know, specifically, but also white and wealthy, and it's a very much a white male wealthy narrative, uh, and without that, it's basically impossible to understand the Rob Ford phenomenon at all. Uh, never mind the fact that he has repeatedly gotten away with things uh, in political life uh, that nobody else could have gotten away with and been elected and, in fact, even celebrated uh, despite these things. You described some of those in, in your article. Can you uh, can you discuss that? Well, the list is an incredibly long one. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it starts... I mean, we know we found out during the election in uh, 2010, prior to his election, of course, that he had uh, been charged with, um, you know, driving while intoxicated when in Florida, and also with being in possession of marijuana when down there. Um, he has been charged with spousal abuse. He was not convicted, but he's been charged. The Toronto Star has published an extensive investigation of how, on repeated occasions, 911 calls have been made to his house around domestic issues. Uh, some of them quite recent. Um, we have issues of him behaving inappropriately while drunk. Uh, we have an accusation, um, I think, that now is, uh, you know, increasingly credible of, uh, you know, inappropriate sexual conduct towards another mayoralty candidate uh, just a couple of months ago while he, while Rob Ford was drunk. Uh, you know, the list simply goes on and on and on. It's it's quite remarkable. And um, I don't think that there's a comparable example of it in uh, Canadian political life that I can think of. I mean, it, it, it seems like the man is imploding, um, just listening to the way that he talks about, I mean, the, the media is one thing, um, his recent commentary on, um, on his radio program, um, again, wasn't that unlike uh, other moments, uh, speaking about the media or speaking about people that are are critical of him um but what do you make of the 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 crack allegations well the crack allegations i mean you know the fact that they're completely believable says something i mean obviously i don't know if it's true or not um you know the story however i mean their narrative about the media in this case is particularly silly uh in that uh, it's it's pretty difficult for me to believe that a New York publication and its reporters and editors is involved in some big conspiracy on behalf of public sector unions and, you know, Toronto downtown leftists, which is who Rob Ford blames for everything uh, that happens to him um, that flows out of his own conduct. He always claims it's the downtown elites out to get him through their 
you know, their people in the media. But the fact is that this was actually, this story was broken by an American publication, you know, so that entire narrative, uh, in this case, it makes absolutely no sense at all. As to the allegations themselves, I mean, three separate reporters say that they've seen this. Um, you know, they say that it's unmistakably Rob Ford. Uh, you know, what can you say? I mean, it's, it, the behavior is believable. It is believable that he would conduct himself in this manner because he has in the past. But, of course, specifically, we have no way of, I mean, until the, the, the video surfaces, if it ever does, we have no way of verifying that it's specifically true, of course. Should we have sympathy if he does have uh, substance abuse problems, though? Should should we should we let this go? Um, those of us on uh, sort of progressives or on the left who um, have been very critical or or been watching this closely. Well, I think we have to have sympathy with him as a human being um, on a certain level, because obviously this is a person who uh, who if, if if the allegations are true, but even if they're not specifically ever verified who has clear substance abuse problems i mean i think it's very difficult to claim otherwise at this point um you know and it's it's fairly clear that his chief of staff uh you know actually quit after asking him to go into rehab and and i don't think he would have done that if there weren't you know some questions as to his substance abuse difficulties and and obviously you know i'm sympathetic to people who have substance abuse issues uh, having said that you know, there are there are two problems in in Ford's case specifically. First is the tremendous level of hypocrisy around this, because you know Ford and his brother and his allies on council have been, you know, relentlessly pro-police. Uh, you know, are very much. Um, I mean, they're certainly not in favor of decriminalizing. Uh, you know, drugs. And so as a result, you know, there there's a, a remarkable hypocrisy if it turns out that this is that this is the case, and and beyond that. You also are dealing with a person who does seem to have, on multiple occasions, behaved abusively towards other people. You know, there's a proven one in the case of him behaving abusively while drunk to people at a hockey game. Uh, there are issues around his family. There are issues around his conduct in public towards other people while being mayor. So while, you know, one has to have sympathy with him as a person, his conduct is, is, is truly unacceptable. And, you, you know, he is the mayor of the fourth largest metropolitan area in North America. Uh, you know, you see he's an important public figure, and you can't just sort of let it go. I, I, I certainly don't think it would have been let go had it been a progressive mayor, I might add. So, you know, there's no real reason to believe it should be let go in his case. You recall an example of uh, uh, Toronto... Uh uh, transit uh, worker who fell asleep um, during a shift, um, and I believe there was a medical c condition related to that. Um, yes, yeah. but that that the narrative um, was literally essentially. Oh, he was treated as yeah. if he was history's greatest monster. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, if you actually were here and had you been in Toronto at the time, it was uh, the it was over the top and it was cruel and it was relentless and it then sparked um, all of these imitation attempts to 
hunt down videos or catch examples of people being allegedly negligent at work. I mean, these are actual workers. I mean, these are not wealthy people. These are not powerful people. Um, you know, and I don't think it's particularly interesting or whatever to, to find somebody, you know, goofing off for 15 seconds and film them uh, when they're working an eight-hour shift, right? But in the case of that specific worker, he was, uh, and not only was he, in fact, suffering from a very bad medical condition that had him on, you know, a heavy medication that actually caused this incident, uh, he has since died of this. And, you know, uh, beyond that, he was, in fact, an actual hero who had, when he was able to drive the uh, for transit, had saved a disabled person's life um, under p- pretty remarkable circumstances. And, you know, so, but there was no compassion for him uh, among the, the right in Toronto. Uh, and it started a whole hysterical frenzy about the supposed entitlement of, you know, public sector union workers, union workers in general, and uh, public workers specifically. Mm-hmm. So, do you do you think a lot of it can be explained merely by the class dimension that's part of this? That if you are working class or uh, an ordinary person, and somehow you, you're perceived to fall down on your job, there's there's no sympathy for you. Whereas, again, like you mentioned, the hypocrisy of of Rob Ford and that he can do no wrong uh, seems to be... Uh, yeah, I, I think there's yeah. certainly... I think that's got to be a part of it. I mean, clearly we have two different sets of standards uh, in our in our society, uh, generally speaking, in terms of how both we treat uh, not only uh, in the court of public opinion, but even in the court system itself, uh, how we treat people who are uh, wealthy um, and uh, people who are white and uh, people who are not. Uh, and, you know, this can be statistically shown, but it even anecdotally, I think that you really see it in how these things play out and who gets away with what. And, I mean, you know, how, how it is that certain communities are, of course, are, are policed dramatically more than other communities. You know, I've never seen any evidence, for example, that, um, that wealthy people uh, or the children of wealthy people do drugs, for example, any less than any other group of people, but they certainly go to jail for it a lot less. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you do have a very, this is a very serious and very long-term and very systemic issue, and Rob Ford is a profound beneficiary of it, despite, of course, his uh, allegations that he's persecuted, which are absurd. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, quite, I, I would argue that the exact opposite is the case, but... And yet at the same time, Rob Ford has um, really tried to make himself out to be the um, the hero of, of, you know, the working person in Toronto, uh, sort of the... Um, Heather Morgan uh, just uh, had an article published today, I believe, uh, Rob, Rob Ford and the Blue Collar Millionaire Myth, this idea yep. that he is, he makes himself out to be the ordinary man who's coming in to, you know, to stop the gravy train. Um. Oh yeah, oh, he absolutely <laughs> does that. Her article is excellent, and and it does, and it is, it's completely correct. Uh, he does do this populist routine, but uh, you know, it, 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 the the routine's also very much like Mike Harris back in the in the nineties, and it's very difficult to understand it outside of also factoring in the reality of suburban white middle class class backlash. And while it is, you know, you can obviously it's meant to appeal 
more broadly than that, and obviously for him to have won an election, they weren't the only people who voted for him. But, you know, it's very clear that there is a, a specific constituency that this is aimed at, a constituency that will appears to want to stick with the mayor no matter what. Uh, and it's a constituency that, of course, he's never been a part of. I mean, he, his, he genuinely is a child of privilege in a demonstrable and obvious way. He's never worked a serious job in his life. I mean, he was given everything uh, mm-hmm. by his family, and he, you know, has he has treated his job as both when he was a city councillor and a mayor accordingly. I mean, he's treated them as part-time jobs. And, you know, and so he does play off of this kind of narrative, absolutely, but it is, there is a subtext of appealing to a very specific group of people who are his core base, and I would argue that that core base is very much uh, suburban, uh, very white, and very middle class. Some have raised uh, the question as to whether this um, prompts uh, Toronto to, to really uh, look at uh, de-amalgamation. Um, so Toronto, uh, for listeners here in Vancouver, amalgamated in 1998, so bringing the, the suburbs into, um, into the city of Toronto. Do you, think, uh, do you think this is something that should be really discussed and and put on the table or is this sort of a well i think it's i think it's open for discussion yeah. i mean it that's that's such a complicated issue because at this point you know there is something of a of a temptation to say that perhaps the ship has sailed on this specific mm-hmm. issue because deamalgamation would be i think more difficult than a lot of people broadly realize uh, you know is it something that should have happened i think with hindsight it probably shouldn't have happened uh, but, you know, there are things now, especially around um, the big move, which, of course, your listeners wouldn't necessarily be familiar with, but it's this very large program to de- to fund and to build desperately needed transit expansion in the greater Toronto area. And this, uh, you know, has to involve the coordination of different levels of government. And I think you might make an argument that adding new layers of government might make it even less likely to happen. Uh, which would be problematic. So, you know, it is a double-edged sword. Clearly, though, there is a disconnect between different parts of the city, although right now, um, even in Etobicoke, uh, Olivia Chow is pulling ahead of Rob Ford in a race for mayor in a one-on-one race. So Mm. I I think his behavior has alienated even large numbers of what used to be his suburban base. Right. What are some of the other issues? I, I know we can tie Rob Ford into a lot of this, but um, from your perspective in Toronto, is this uh, is this issue really taking up so much of the airtime that other issues like transit, housing, uh, other issues aren't being uh, addressed adequately? Well, it's certainly right now it is. There's no question. I mean, his uh, it, this isn't in Toronto, it's basically the lead item on every newscast, uh, you know, but uh, how long that'll stay, it's difficult to say, and of course, there really is only Rob Ford to blame for this, but, you know, having said that, I mean, obviously, it it is distracting from very real issues. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of those issues weren't being discussed before the scandal. Mm -hmm. Um, Transit is being discussed, but, you know, there's an air of unreality, certainly, around that. Uh, Ford and his allies somehow managed to get a council that had sort of largely rebelled against him on the issue of transit to basically, you know, reject 
any method of funding mm-hmm. <laughs> the big move. Uh, and I, I mean, and the reason, you know, I didn't, which is somewhat humorous in that, you know, they essentially want this $50 billion plan and they want absolutely no one to pay for it. So, you know, there is a whole fictional narrative that goes on in the in the Ford world and in Ford Nation, and, and I suppose in neoliberal politics more broadly, that certainly transcends Rob Ford but and, and this specific scandal. But having said that, you know, I think when you look at the problems facing Toronto, they are certainly compounded and made far worse by the last two years of truly inadequate leadership and bizarre personal behavior that seems to derail, you know, efforts to to put together a coherent agenda. I thought previous scandals would uh, sink Rob Ford's ship, but I was uh, proven wrong. Do you think this is likely to to force Rob Ford out of office? You know, Jonathan Kaye in the National Post made a fairly persuasive argument that Ford will go down guns blazing mm-hmm. and will never be forced out. The only way he'll be forced out of office is say he's removed in handcuffs, I think is what Jonathan Kay said. And I have to say that I, I actually tend to agree with him on this. Uh, you know, I don't see eye to eye with him on much, but I on, in this case I do agree with him. I think that you know, Ford has a, a very much a sense of, you know, that he can't be touched and that he is he probably believes his own mythology of victimization. And I, you know, I think that he will not resign. Having said that, you know, he, uh, it is possible he could still be pushed out, uh, it could, you know, certainly if his brother were to turn on him, but there's no indication of that happening. I think, however, there's no serious chance of him being reelected at this point. And I, and I think further, it has dealt a very, you know, serious blow to the provincial conservatives who had touted Doug Ford as a possible provincial candidate for them in Ontario, uh, which I don't think will be happening now that he's been accused of being a former hashish dealer. Right. So, you know, I do think that this has probably ended the political career of the Fords. Um, but, you know, they've surprised us before. So I suppose, uh, I mean, his his entire election was a surprise to many. So, you know, I suppose anything's possible. But in the short answer is sadly, no, I don't think he will resign. Okay. Well, Michael, any final words or do you want to leave it at that? Um, no, you know, I just, uh, the only thing I'd say in, in parting is that it, it is a, a, a tremendously powerful example of how, you know, we have we can have politicians who are not held to account uh, simply because they hold a, a a set of views that many who are wealthy and powerful, or many who are disillusioned, who uh, and have bought into it, are willing to abide by, uh, even in the face of obvious hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Michael Laxer, uh, contributor for Rabble.ca, in his article discussing Rob Ford. Check that article out at rabble.ca.
movies are a great way to understand the culture and thought process of a generation. And the 7th Annual Taiwanese Film Festival is taking place at the Downtown Vancouver International Film Center from June 14th to 16th. It will be featuring some of the best Chinese films from the small island of Taiwan. Come and experience a different world and get to know more about the many groups of people living in this awesome city. For more details, please visit TWFF.ca. Again, that is TWFF.ca. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. When I was a kid, I didn't have much, but I knew Father's Day was coming up. And I wanted to get my dad something that I could afford, but that would also show how much I cared. So what I did is I got him a t-shirt. It said, world's greatest dad, semi-finalist. Just for Laughs presents Anthony Jeselnik, star of Comedy Network's Jeselnik Offensive, at the Vogue Theatre, Thursday, June 6. Tickets on sale now at VogueTheatre.com. Or call 604-569-1144. And you're listening to The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks for being with me. The Engaging Women Transforming Cities Conference is a one-day event designed to bring together municipal officials, urban designers, and planners, and women and girls interested in transforming our cities into places where women are more involved in electoral processes and municipal governments are responsive to the priorities of women and girls in Canada's urban centers. And uh, the women transforming uh, the the engaging women transforming cities conference uh, takes place on Thursday, May thirtieth, from eight thirty a.m. to five p.m. Uh, at the uh, Siegel Graduate School Business School at Simon Fraser University uh, in downtown Vancouver. And uh, certainly, will be full of um, wonderful discussion, uh, really important discussion, um, especially when we think about things like housing and uh, services in the city, and uh, importantly, how we need to put an equity and a gender lens on those to to understand how uh, women are uh, disproportionately affected by um, uneven or unequal access to certain things uh, in cities. And uh, I had the pleasure of chatting with Margot Young. She's associate uh, professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. And uh, she gave me um, a little bit of a taste of what uh, can be expected at the conference on May 30th. And uh, we're going to be on site uh, doing a lot of recording. There's going to be some uh, fabulous panels, um, which I'll briefly mention, um, but we'll be bringing to you um, um, over the course of a number of weeks um, on the city. Um, So... Just to give you a sense of what you can expect um, if you do want to attend, um, a keynote from uh, Caroline Andrew, Partnering to Transform Cities. Uh, she's the director of the Center of, uh, on Governance at the University of Ottawa and president of Women in Cities International. Um, and we have uh, Interventions for Feminist Urban Futures um, by Tiffany Muller um, Mirndahl. And uh, she's the junior Ruth Wynn Woodward Chair in Gender and Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University. Those are the keynote speakers um, in the morning. 
on um, May 30th, and we have uh, panel sessions um, on the streets where we live, housing rights and city-based solutions for women and girls. Uh, Young women take charge leading the city through the voices of youth and also uh, designing a safer city for women. Uh, There's a a lunch as well uh, with a a keynote address. Um, Sylvia uh, Bashkevin, how do women transform cities? Uh, she's, the, she's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and the author of Tales of Two Cities, Women and Municipal Restructuring in London and Toronto. Another keynote uh, during the lunch um, is um, on gender equality and social inclusion in municipal policies and services. Additionally, panel sessions in the afternoon uh, include putting a gender equity lens on environmental sustainability, social inclusion and participation, the good, the bad, and the possible, and lastly, innovative implementation of an equity lens. Uh, So some uh, excellent panels. Uh, The day is uh, hosted uh, by Ellen Woodsworth, uh, co-chair of Women Transforming Cities Society, former uh, city councillor here in Vancouver, Um, and uh, it will be uh, really a wonderful discussion, and, and if you can't make it out, uh, you can be sure to tune into the city here on CATR Tuesdays, 5 p.m., or CJSF on Fridays, syndicated on 10 a.m. Uh, for more coverage of this um, conference, we're going to be bringing you uh, panels and uh, discussions from the conference uh, over the course of this summer. And now I want to go to my conversation with Margot Young, uh, again, Associate Professor of Law at the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. Um, I'll just begin generally by talking about the conference at large, Mm -hmm. but I know that you're talking to other people about that, but I'll just preface my remarks then by saying that it's really critical in understanding how justice plays out in the urban environment to think about the different groups or different constituencies who inhabit the city. And most uh, obviously, of course, are women. And women have tremendous diversity and experience the city from other perspectives of other social divisions such as race or disability and so on. But very importantly, gender is a lens through which we experience the city. And so it's really critical for planners and for policy developers to think about the lived environment that is our urban environment from the perspective of those who inhabit it who are female. And so the conference generally is exploring that aspect of thinking about cities and about urban justice. More specifically, our panel is focusing on the issue of housing and how women interface with the different housing issues that we know are so critically important in the city today. And I should also say that this is not to say that there aren't critical issues of housing for many individuals and for women in specific in non-urban contexts. So we know that rural and small town environments also have housing issues that relate to affordability, availability, um, accessibility, and also adequacy. But it is an issue of the modern global city, the issue of affordable, accessible, adequate housing. And women have particular um, ways of experiencing that issue. So we're very common these days with the problem of homelessness. More 
or less common perhaps is the idea of homelessness really as the tip of a much larger iceberg of housing insecurity and issues around housing access. And for women to look only at homelessness is not to really understand what the problems of housing are for women. And so we see indeed that uh, there's really a complex interdependency between women's housing issues and other issues like in- income security, daycare, employment, transportation, and so on that women face in the urban environment. So in this panel, we'll be talking about what taking a gendered lens to housing justice will look like and what the specific issues are for women as they attempt to access the great variety of housing that lies along the spectrum of the type of secure homes individuals might um, aspire to or desire. So, for example, when you talk about issues of homelessness or of the street population, you're not actually really accessing adequately the issues of homelessness as they play out or are manifest in women's lives. So, for example, the sleeping rough or being homeless on the street is a very different experience for men than for women generally. It can be less safe. Shelter options can be less available. Shelters are typically uh, not as safe for women. Women uh, experience uh, sexual assault, sexual harassment in shelters in a way that's distinctive to their gender. And so if you want to sort of really think about housing insecurity for women, you have to think about the woman who's you know sleeping with her children on the basement floor of a friend's house or in a hotel or motel or the back of a car, not as visible as the street homeless are, but certainly in as an acute a situation of housing insecurity as other individuals were more attentive to. Absolutely. Do you want me to pause there? Yeah, yeah. And, speci- and specifically with uh, this conference, do you feel that uh, this is uh, going alongside the Federation, Federation of Community Mun- Municipalities uh, conference here in Vancouver? Do you think, though, that a number of these issues aren't uh, being addressed adequately in forums like uh, the FCM's uh, annual meeting? You know, I can't talk to those annual meetings, but I can talk generally to social policy and social assumptions around housing and say that they are insufficiently gender sensitive. And so when you look at uh, cases that come up, for example, through the courts, raising issues of housing, it's not always the case that judges are sensitive enough to what the shelter situation might look like for women as opposed to men. And here I'm thinking about a recent case that went up to the level of the British Columbia Court of Appeal that came out of Victoria, which was about the right of the individuals who are sleeping rough outside in parks to put up overhead shelter. And the equation of how many shelter beds there are with how many individuals there are who need one has to be one that takes into account the substantive and real availability of shelter beds for women as opposed to men. And you'll see that that's quite different, that the shelter needs of women for safety may be different or less available than they are for men. And if you're not specific to the circumstances and the substantive reality of what it means to be female and in a situation of housing insecurity, you wouldn't necessarily be sensitive to the kinds of shelter policies that should be in place, the types of shelter that the city and the province should be funding and ensuring are available. So it's really just to say that as in other areas, we often pay insufficient attention to the difference that gender makes. And of course, women get the short end of that stick. It's 
you know, we have a history of uh, discrimination on the basis of gender against women, a history of not sufficiently factoring in the circumstances of women's lives and their distinctive social, political, and economic place in society in understanding what our policy concerns should be. So in a way, this conference is a really important both corrective and reminder that we need to think about making our cities ideal, safe, just, accessible for women. I mean, one of the really interesting things that social geographers and planners show us is that cities can have very different lived realities depending on who the group is you're looking at. So, you know, studies looking at single mothers on income assistance show that they occupy a very different civic terrain than individuals in different circumstances who are perhaps more affluent or more economically secure. And so we need to think about creating cities with public and private space that allows for full inclusion of the diversity, but in this instance, particularly the diversity of women, as the plans and policy to create those spaces are established. And so really, you know, the, the conference as a whole is an important reminder and a focusing of civic concerns, civic policy, civic discussions on the full population of the city. And our panel in particular looks at what is one of the critical areas for cities around the world access to housing and what the implications of that are for women. We know that women disproportionately do the caregiving work in society for children, for elders, for the sick. We know that women disproportionately experience poverty, disproportionately are reliant on social assistance in Canada. That means that their needs with respect to housing and programs that ensure particular kinds of housing are available are going to be very distinctive to that social and economic placement. A number of the uh, of the challenges you talk about, though, deal with um, justice and, and rights, and um, a lot of those have to do with provincial and federal governments. Do you hope that out of this conference um, there can be a real, um, at least some some sort of consensus and, and momentum around um, really drawing attention to these issues and, and implicating senior levels of government in them? Um, as well as uh, the obvious um, urban uh, dimensions to them as well. Can you talk about yeah, some of I those think, issues? Sure. I, I sure. Um, you know, in a, a a federation like Canada, it's uh, complex policymaking and cooperative policymaking that's required. So, in our most successful eras of ensuring adequate housing, there was involvement from all three levels of government, the federal government, provincial government, and the municipal government. And clearly the federal government, I would say, is not holding up its end of the bargain right now. They're insufficiently committed to playing a role in ensuring adequate housing. But this conference really reminds us of a couple of important things. One, that much of the struggle for justice today in in urban Canada occurs at the local level. And so the city is really an important site of striving to make a juster society. It also reminds us that the municipal government has a role to play, and it has a role to play on its own, but also a role to play in seeking out, coordinating, and being in partnership with the federal and provincial governments. And so you'll see, I think, uh, the the municipalities conference that follows the day afterwards, people from all three levels of government, because clearly what happens at the city 
level is also reflective of uh, cooperative involvement and engagement by cities with municipal and, and federal governments as well. But this is nowhere truer than in relation to housing, that you need to have some level of synergy across all the levels of government, but it has to be one that fits the local environment, that comes out of and is reflective of the particular local circumstance. And so it's entirely appropriate to focus on issues of housing as they relate to women at a conference that's about women transforming cities, women in the city. But it's also important to have a broad lens of analysis that forces you to think as well about what role there is for the provincial government and for the federal government in any particular municipal uh, campaign or strategy towards dealing with issues of housing insecurity and housing inadequacy. And, you know, we see that in Vancouver as well with calls for both federal and provincial involvement and funding and, uh, you know, complex regulatory structuring around, say, taxation, for example, at the federal level, that's part of a complex interwoven picture of how we have to actually deal with ensuring that everyone has adequate housing. And, and I would mention, just by way of a background, that the right to adequate housing is something that Canada and all of its levels of government have committed to internationally with respect to United Nations human rights treaties. It's clearly a piece of what, you know, a just society provides those who are resident in that society. And we really have yet to meaningfully sort of walk this housing adequacy talk in terms of what's happening in our urban centers in Canada. But as I said before, you know, there's another conversation also to be had about housing issues in rural communities and, of course, with respect to Indigenous reserves. There are clear housing issues that the governments have yet to really step up to their responsibility in relation to. I'd like to have you weigh in on um, what we're seeing in Vancouver and, and uh, more broadly across this region. You're on a panel with uh, anti-poverty activist, activist Jean Swanson and uh, a housing planner from Metro Vancouver as well. But I want to ask you to reflect on whether the city in many ways is going to be helping to accomplish some of these, um, some larger issues and questions around uh, housing justice and and looking at the equity dimensions um, when we are allowing the the private market to essentially determine uh, the trajectory of development and and housing when we're allowed sorry you're coming in and out when oh, so housing justice and housing equity when we are allowing when we are allowing um, private developers largely to determine the trajectory of development within the city or the region yeah. How does that um, shape gender and I, and access to housing and how that can be very unequal mm-hmm. and uneven? Well, I think there, I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle and maybe a more general angle, which is to say that market-driven housing clearly doesn't meet the needs or the dictates of housing justice. We've seen that. We know in terms of the relative lack of power tenants hold with respect to landlords that it's really important to have strong, meaningful tenancy protections in provincial legislation. That's one conversation to be had about what's not and need it needs to be in the Residential Tenancy Act, which is, of course, a piece of legislation that comes to us from our provincial government. In terms of city 
planning procedures. It's important to have community input. It's important, I think, to have strategic plans that deal with both environmental and social sustainability. And it's important as well to have a sort of community and collective governance structure that oversees and that directs the market. I mean, that's a, I don't know, you know, that's clear in lots of ways that the market does not provide the most just outcome. And, uh, you know, there's a, it is clearly a point of great contention in Vancouver right now about the type of development that's going ahead, about what the goals of that development are and how they fit within the larger collective concerns about environmental and social sustainability. So there's a debate about density, there's debate about, you know, transportation, implementation, transportation hubs. These are all important and critical active questions that you really want your city government to be clearly playing a guiding role in relation to. What this conference does, and our panel in particular, says to those people who are making decisions and working out legislative rules and guidelines, etc., to have an eye to what the impact on women is and how women experience the city, what their distinctive needs are based on what is a very distinctive political and economic set of circumstances that women today experience. Margot Young, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. Uh, And she was speaking about the Engaging Women Transforming Cities uh, Conference 2013. It's a one-day event designed to bring together municipal officials, urban designers and planners, and women and girls interested in transforming our cities into places where women are more involved in electoral processes and municipal governments are responsive to the priorities of women and girls in Canada's urban centers. And if you want to check out that conference, uh, that is on May 30th. Uh, That's Thursday. Um, And as we go to broadcast here on CATR May 28th, uh, that is two days away. Um, For listeners on CJSF, you won't have heard this notice, but uh, be certain uh, or be, excuse me, be sure to check uh, back on the city uh, for content and coverage of um, the uh, the conference, we're going to be bringing panel discussions to you. I mentioned there's a, a wide variety um, of interesting panel discussions um, with many uh, different um, speakers, including uh, academics, planners, um, practitioners, and um, activists um, from Vancouver and beyond. Uh, speaking around a number of issues like housing, like housing justice, uh, like equity, um, like uh, the gender dimensions of all of these issues. Uh, So be sure to tune in uh, in upcoming weeks here in the city, Tuesdays 5 p.m. on CATR, syndicated on CJSF on Fridays at 10 a.m. And uh, lots to come on that. So again, uh, Thursday, May 30th, uh, from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., you can check out that conference and the information about it at womentransformingcities.org. And the location, again, of that conference at the Graduate School of Business, Simon Fraser University at 500 Granville Street. And this is The City here on CATR 101.9 FM. And as I mentioned, syndicated on CJSF, thanks for listening. If you missed any part of the program, you can download it as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Catch The City Live, as I mentioned, Tuesdays at 5 on CITR and syndicated on Fridays at 10 a.m. Be sure to follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore fm and on Facebook by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions. Uh, and again, you can find this program as a podcast at thecityfm.org, and there's lots of exclusive web content there, so check it out. 
Um, you'll uh, certainly have a lot there uh, to check out and listen to. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Here on CITR, you have Flex Your Head coming up next at 6 p.m. If you're listening syndicated on CJSF, you've got Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman coming up next. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll be back next week.